Imagine having a job where you're not allowed to do the work that you're supposed to do, Mm -hmm. where instead of doing cool podcasts and reaching out with lots of cool information and and sharing knowledge and ideas, you're just pretty much required to fill out forms all day and show up at a place and insist that you are trying. You wouldn't probably stay too long doing that because you're not able to do a thing that matters. And that's what we're asking social workers to do. We're taking people who are helpers, who are natural carers, and we're asking them to do work that breaks their heart. And you can't expect people to stay very long doing that. But if we can make it possible for them to do work that fills their hearts, that they can see how they matter every day, they can see how they're saving families and children and empowering those families to save themselves. That's a job that a lot of people would really feel good about, would be excited about, and would love. And at the same time, the families and children are better served. And we think that's possible. Hey there. It's Jenny Harold from Dreams with Deadlines. And I'm thrilled to introduce a new idea into our podcast series, The Future Of. In each episode, we'll dive into the fascinating world of tomorrow, exploring what lies ahead with leading experts from various fields. In today's episode, We're joined by Dr. Jennifer Jacobs, a former nuclear physicist turned founder of Connect Our Kids. Dr. Jacobs' journey from the world of nuclear counterterrorism to revolutionizing the foster care system is truly inspiring. Here are a few things we talked about. The transformative impact of technology, the importance of family connections, and an audacious goal for the future of foster care. Finally, we wrap up with our signature quickfire questions. Let's jump in. I am super stoked because I have Jennifer Jacobs with me today. She is the CEO of Connect Our Kids, and she's working on applying AI to solving foster care and homelessness, which I think it's a heavy topic, but it's an exciting topic to talk about today. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay, let's talk about Connect Our Kids, because that's this is an interesting future that you believe needs to be brought into the fore, where, correct me if I'm wrong, you are a nuclear physic, physicist, a White House fellow, And you decided to take this journey on finding permanent loving families for children in need. Can you talk us through why this problem? Because I can imagine being a nuclear physicist is a kind of a big deal. And if anybody could help fight, let's say, the climate crisis, now would be the time to have someone like you. What made you decide that this was something to solve and that it needed to be solved now? and that you would be part of that solution? So I was working in nuclear counterterrorism as a nuclear engineer and scientist and did that most of my adult life. 12 years ago, I read an article in Time magazine about foster care and how kids in foster care who are not adopted age out and what happens to them. And I frequently would read articles about foster care. I used to ride the school bus with kids who we're in foster care at the farm at the end of the dead-end dirt road I lived down in Michigan. But I had been in the Army and a math science direction, and I didn't feel like I had any ideas or really value to contribute to that space. When I read this article, it talked about something that was working in foster care, which, one, was unusual, so that got my attention. But two, 
what was working was that specialized social workers who were able to have the time and the resources to do so would, instead of hoping that somebody would come in and want to adopt a teenager or a special needs child or a sibling group, instead of hoping that might happen, they would go out from the child and build out the whole network around the child of family, kin, meaning family-like connections, neighbors, teachers, coaches, church members. And in building that network, they would find the person who had a connection to the child and who was in the right place and time in their lives to step up for that child. And in also finding that person, they would find another dozen or two dozen people who also wanted to help make that possible. And as I read that, I thought, first of all, that makes a lot of sense to me. That seems doable. Most of us, if we knew someone in our extended network needed our help, we would want to try to help somehow. Somehow that was in our capability set. And the other thing that clicked in my brain was that this is actually something that we already do around terrorists and terrorist networks. The Intel space has software to help build out those connections to manage the huge amount of data that's involved. And managing huge amounts of data and dealing with that data is something that I've done all my life in my career. And so I know how hard it is. And as I read this article, I thought, how can these social workers manage the huge amount of data it takes to find several hundred people connected to a child and to reach out to them and to keep track of all that? Well, this Intel space has software that does it. And so I realized that this space needed that kind of software and tools. I actually called up the organization that was highlighted in the article and I asked them, how are you doing this? You must have some kind of software. And they said, we, we use Post-it notes and some of us feel comfortable in Microsoft Excel. So we use that. And Microsoft Excel, while it's a tool that I love, is not a tool that's optimized for this kind of work. So uh, that's how I got started. I imagine not. So Let's talk about the statistics, because I think it's very important to level set what we're talking about here. Approximately how many kids are in foster care in the United States on any given year? The latest data, it always lags a couple years, is about 420,000 children are in foster care on a given count day of the year. But that means that about 600 plus children actually are touched by foster care in that year as well because of the rotation in and out. And then when you talked about aging out, at what age does a child age out of the system and how many of those folks end up aging out on any given calendar year as well? So the date at which a child leaves foster care or a youth at that point leaves foster care can vary by state from 18 to some states go up to 21. However, once a youth is 18, they are not required to stay in foster care if they don't choose to. And many, even if they are allowed to stay and still have payments made for their housing and other needs, uh, choose to leave because they don't want that kind of control over their lives. And so effectively, many youth leave at 18 or, or close to that. Um, every year in this country, 20,000 youth age out of foster care with, so that means that they have never been given that promised forever family. They have not reunited officially with their family of origin, and they are effectively on their own. By and large, what happens, and I think this is the connection between foster care and homelessness, what happens to a lot of these now young adults that age out of the system? 
what ends up being a common story for them? So obviously each person is different, but not infrequently. A youth could go from their foster home to a homeless shelter on their 18th birthday. So that's not a great birthday. If you think about any 18-year-olds that you know, they're rarely prepared to be completely self-sufficient and self-operating at that age. None of us really are. They may, in some cases, have supports put around them, but it's very difficult to really operate without the network. Human beings are creatures of relationships and networks. And so if we don't have that family support, that neighborhood support, that community support, youth who age out of foster care by age 26, two-thirds of them have experienced homelessness, incarceration, or they may actually be dead. Uh, These youth die. By 26. By 26. And they die at 10 times the rate of their peers. 10 times? Yes. Yes. (sighs) Okay. This is, it's getting heavier, but we're getting, there's hope here. Hold on, Dreams of Deadline listeners. There's hope here. Okay. What is then, let's say, the cost, if you will, of maintaining one of these, the lives of one of these children in the system as it is today? Because that's, I think, something perhaps the government's thinking about is like, okay, so this is a line item in one of our appropriations bills. What does that look like when we think about supporting this at a national level for any given child. So if you're asking about the cost of a child in foster care, it can vary uh, again. So foster care is operated at the state and sometimes at the county level. So that's why I keep saying it can vary. But some states have uh, different levels of reimbursement. So there are direct reimbursements to those who are housing and feeding the child, the foster parents. And then of course, there's the whole infrastructure around that. But you can think ballpark, it can cost between 20000 to over $100,000 per year to maintain a child in foster care just at the basic level of housing and food and payments um, for those, those things. If a child is ending up in a supportive group home, so for severe mental health or emotional or other needs, and they're, if they're placed in a group facility or a, a care facility, those are the ones that can go upwards well over 100000 But of course, those are children with severe needs that obviously need to be addressed. If a youth goes from foster care to kinship care, ideally, those supportive payments would be maintained actually to the kin or to the person who's going to provide that care for them because removing it means that it's very difficult. It's more difficult to have folks step up even if they want to it can be a financial strain on a family to do that. So this is another kind of catch-22 where the government wants to say, this is your grandchild, your nephew, your niece. You should care for them as if you were their parent without reimbursement. But that makes it hard for that person to do, even if they genuinely love and care for that child. And so some states are moving more towards providing that reimbursement but that's an ongoing evolution of choices because then, of course, you get to the other end of the spectrum where people are sometimes doing this just as a form of income. And that's a horrible thing to be a human being who's used just for the income. Absolutely. We'll talk about the other part of the equation here where there is a current system in place. There's like social workers that get into the business thinking that they're going, you mentioned this to be before, Like they get into it because they want to be helpful. 
but they're currently in a system that tracks, let's say, warm beds, basically. It's the metric for success for someone when a social worker gets into a program, they're like, just find this kid at home and get him in a bed. Can you share a bit about how you're educating or training to change that mindset so that it is more in alignment with what a social worker gets educated and has passion to do? Because there seems to be a disconnect with the current status quo system that's in place. Social workers are really put in an impossible situation, right? So most people go into social work because they want to help people. And that's a wonderful thing. And then unfortunately, they end up in these roles, especially if they're working direct case management, foster care, where they and their supervisors and even sometimes their whole organization is under pressure to keep kids from having to sleep in offices because that's not a good thing. And so it becomes, as you mentioned, a find a bed process. But I would suggest that if my choices were to sleep in any old bed in a stranger's house who didn't really want me there unless I was, they were being paid to have me there, or to sleep somewhere less comfortable with people who love me dearly, I would choose a second. And I think most people would. So finding a bed has become the bureaucratic solution to the specter of children lined up with no place to sleep that night, which is not acceptable. But the bed is not the primary need for a child. It is a need, and it's important. But a child needs to be with their people, whatever that means to them. It could be a loving, caring foster family who truly feels that they're part of the family. It could be their uncle. It could be their grandma. It could be their neighbor. It could be their mother. It just varies by family and by child and by situation. And social workers need to be given the bandwidth to really be able to understand each child's and family's dynamic and what that child and family needs to support them to be with with their own people. So when we talk about with their own people, let's talk about the technology that powers this. Right? Surely this is not going to be something that you're going to be able to generate, and I'm using that word intentionally, via an Excel spreadsheet. This finding next of kin. Can you talk about how the technology that you are using empowers the social workers to do exactly what you've described, which is whatever that that kin, the next of kin, finding their the people who they need to be connected with, how do they get there? Sure. So our software is really just a data search and holding and organizing tool. It's called Family Connections, and it mimics the Intel software that I had described at the beginning, in which uh, Intel analysts are trying to find and organize and hold the data for, for being able to find data again when you need it in a mapping network system. Our software that my co-founder and I designed and have piloted in 2020, and it's now active in, um, in over 44 states, we are essentially mimicking that intelligence style software, but it doesn't do anything by itself. It does not itself go out and magically build a family tree. I tell social workers all the time, this isn't magic and, and it isn't anything without you, the social worker. It's a tool for you to be able to, to enter what you know, for it to search the internet and pull down information. If I'm looking for Jennifer Jacobs 
And that's not a super common name, but it's not a super uncommon name. It's fairly common. But if I have any address where Jennifer's ever lived, if I have any phone number she's ever used, the internet remembers that. And so it can then find a lot more information about that person. And so we allow the social worker to just import that directly into this family map that they're building. And that can save an enormous amount of time. It isn't necessarily perfectly accurate because the internet is not. But it's the same information that a social worker would spend hours and sometimes days trying to find on the internet and then still have to check, is this information correct? So what we're trying to do is take the same actions a social worker does if they even can and have those happen really fast. Have it be visually organized so that it's easy to find what you were working on before you got interrupted by a phone call or a meeting. It's easy to have a supervisor step in to help on the day that you're out with a family emergency. Have a colleague uh, pick up if you turn over. Uh, This field is plagued by high turnover. And so even when a social worker does an enormous amount of great work, then they may move to another job and the next person coming in is starting from scratch. And so our software is cloud-based so that teams can work together and support each other. Social workers can can operate a little more reasonably in that they can take vacations, they can tend to their family, they can care for each other by helping each other's shoulder each other's loads as needed and bring on new social workers quickly. So, But the software doesn't work by itself and it doesn't make decisions. All it does is hold and help organize data in a visual drag and drop format that is really easy to use. We found that Gen Z social workers love it especially because it works really intuitively for them the way they expect the world to work. And so we're excited to work with everyone to move this into the kind of expectation that a social worker should have. They should be provided with cutting edge tools to do this work rather than being asked to work paper and pencil and Excel. It's amazing to me how many different departments for the government still need digitization, but I think we're accelerating in that direction. Perhaps you can share with us a story. I think I had heard you tell a story. Maybe the names were masked to protect the innocent, as it were, but I remember you sharing a story about Abby, which was a case to put a good, like a real narrative behind what it is that Connect Our Kids is doing for foster care and connecting these kids with their people, as you call it. Sure. So Abby is this, and it is a pseudonym. When we tell stories, we always protect the identity of those involved because these are their private lives and we don't want to exploit those. But we do want to give listeners and readers an opportunity to understand, yes, what this looks like in real life. And so Abby's a story about a 15-year-old girl who was in foster care in a group home. And she was really spiraling into a bad place depression-wise. She didn't have contact with anyone that she was related to. She didn't have any of her people, so we say, visiting her or with her. And her social worker was able to get access to our software. They were one of our earlier users. And in doing so, was hoping to actually just help Abby out of the spiral by having maybe someone that she knew visit her or call. The kind of thing you might like if you were a child in a group home. The social worker, who we call Sue, very quickly actually found Abby's paternal grandfather who had been looking for her. And as it turned out, some of your listeners might wonder how does a grandfather lose track of his granddaughter? And it's in foster care, unfortunately, very easy because once a child goes into foster care, the family is often cut off. 
if they are not actively petitioning for placement and many relatives aren't in a position to do, they're cut off such that they're, they, don't have, they have no rights to that child. And of course, that makes no sense because um, all of the children that you probably know, that I know, they have relationships with their relatives and their cousins and their grandparents. And, and it's not normal to be growing up without that. So anyways, Sue found Abby's paternal grandfather. He'd been looking for her. And he very quickly said, we want Abby. We want to know what's happening with her. We want to be in her life. We didn't know where she was or how to contact her. Um, The grandfather organized a family meeting and uh, brought dozens of family to it. Uh, They were able to meet with Abby. And Abby, during that family meeting, met an adult cousin she'd never met before. And they just clicked. And um, as it turned out then because the grandfather's purpose was this family will care for Abby. They just hadn't been allowed to. And within a few months, Abby was moving into that adult cousin's home. The adult cousin was delighted to provide a home for Abby. Her depression lifted. Her personality, as Sue described to us, her personality changed completely from a depressed, withdrawn, fearful teenager to a bubbly, happily, happy young girl who, who was claimed by people and knew that she was valued. And that's the difference, right, between being alone and feeling that you're unwanted and knowing that you are wanted dearly. We're going to take a short break. You are listening to Dreams with Deadlines, the podcast that brings you real stories of trials and victories in business, brought to you by Quantive. Quantive is a strategy execution platform that helps organizations create greater strategic agility and excel at execution. With more than 2,000 customers, Quantive helps companies close the gap between strategy and execution to achieve their best possible. And now, back to the show. Yeah, so we're talking about, let's say, the qualitative analysis of the work that you do, which results in restored relationship. I remember listening once to a governor talk about homelessness and that it's not that someone who's homeless has run out of a home. It's that they've run out of relationship. And you're talking about, on average, if you're a 26-year-old and you're coming from this system, you are either homeless, incarcerated, or possibly dead. Perhaps then we can talk about the kind of quantitative analysis that you've done previously, where you outline like a 10-year ROI or return on investment for focusing on training, social work, best practices, the deployment of this technology, things like this, and the operations that are necessary to support this work in not the way it's done today, but utilizing the technologies and honestly, utilizing our network of people out there, which is on the web, which is going untapped today. Can you talk us through that quantitative analysis that you've sketched out previously? We were asked by some of our supporters to do this ROI calculation. And so that's where this comes from. And it's because the numbers are really a little bit absurd. And, uh, and, and so a child, a youth, who ages out of care without support, which we have 20,000 every year who do. By some studies, it depends on what study you want to look at. There's a lot of variables there, but you can kind of ballpark it to be a half million to a million 
uh, dollar cost per youth. And this is in all of the public services that they're likely to use by not graduating from high school, by not having gainful employment, um, by not paying taxes, by using the prison systems, uh, by needing to be placed in prison, homelessness services, use of the emergency room as basic health care, all those kinds of things that you can think of that are going to happen for those who are really struggling. So that, by several studies, is in the kind of half million to million dollar range. And then if you compare that, that's the cost. If you compare that with, um, or that's the opportunity, if you compare that with the cost of what it would take to turn some of those lives around. Because we already have a full government apparatus in place, which is a multi-billion dollar apparatus that provides the foster homes, the infrastructure of social work, all of the systems to provide that, Connect Our Kids, what we offer is riding on top of that. It is helping the social workers who are already paid to be more effective, to use the resources that they have better, to use the internet and all the data there and be able to pull that data and use it. So the cost of our sauce, uh, the cost of our efforts to re, uh, for society to recover that half million to million per youth works out to over a 20,000% ROI, which again uh, is kind of absurd, but it's it's only absurd because I like to give it the analogy of if you were to think of Amazon making deliveries, but dropping the package two doors down. So our system has, we have this multi-billion dollar system that taxpayers are already paying for, but it's dropping the package two doors away. It's failing to do that last bit of the delivery of connecting children to their people, connecting families to the supports that they need. And you can think of how incredibly high an ROI would be of a company that just went around and delivered packages two doors away, right? And just went and picked those packages up that were two doors away and just get them to the right door. And so that that's what creates such an incredible ROI. And it highlights the point that if we've already, we as a society, we've already put so much into this and the results that we're getting are not what we wanted. We did not put billions of dollars, taxpayers did not put billions of dollars into a system for the purpose of failing children, for the purpose of having youth end up homeless and incarcerated and dead at 10 times the rate of their peers. That's not the goal. That's not what American citizens wanted or really. And so what we're doing is we're saying with just that bit more effort of what we're trying to provide, connecting kids to their people, building those relationships, allowing them to be in relationship with people who care about them, that brings that package to the last two doors. It sounds like what you have been able to do so far, the results, at least what I've been able to read, you are the most successful technology platform for family search and engagement in the country to date. You'd mentioned that 44 states are using it to make life-changing connections for thousands more children like Abby out there. What does the future look like for Connect Our Kids? And as you're thinking about the future of foster care and homelessness, what is that future that we need to work toward, in your opinion? Yeah, thank you. And I just want to make sure that I'm not being, that it's not being misunderstood. So when I say we're being used in 44 states, not necessarily by 44 state governments, our usage in those states can vary. In some states, 
uh, we have a handful of users who are just wanting to do better, and we make it possible for them to do that. And in some other states, we are being used at the state government level. So the future is that we want to make sure that every child who's in foster care is connected to their people. And our software is available to help do that to every social worker who wants to use it. We're working towards being able to support. We have a small pilot going with a homelessness organization because that's an area that we're learning about. We want to make sure that we understand how we can be helpful in that space and move in thoughtfully to that space and make our services available in a way that's thoughtful and helpful to those who are experts in homelessness and have been working there for many years. But we do believe that, um, I like what you said earlier, that homelessness is a is a lack of relationships. And so as we help those who serve the homeless to help rebuild those relationships, we think that our tools can be helpful. Um, because again, that's a huge data problem. Just from my, my science perspective, it's really hard to maintain, even just if you think of all the relationships that you have personally, it's hard to remember them all at once. And you kind of go through, who do I know from this, from that? You have different maybe alumni groups or different friends from different times in your life, your relatives. And it's hard to hold all that in your own head. And that's your own family, your own people. Imagine trying to hold that in your head for other people and then for lots of other people. It's really not possible for the human brain to keep that much data organized in just, in, just with the brain alone. And so our software is... Uh, you can think of it as a relationships data holder for those who are trying to help others build, maintain, and retain those relationships. So that applies to homelessness space, that applies to children in foster care and families struggling in and around foster care, that applies possibly to the incarceration system for those who are trying to serve those in incarceration. We recently had a probation officer reach out to us for information around whether she could try to help those she's serving. Because again, not a space that I'm an expert in, but it's not hard to imagine that those who are incarcerated or who are coming out of incarceration have a dearth of strong, supportive, healthy relationships. They may have some, they may not, but they, they most likely could benefit from more and stronger relationships in, that are healthy. And so those are spaces that we're all interested in. We've also been talking with the human trafficking space those who are coming out of trafficking, again, have been ensnared in unhealthy and in their case, very dangerous relationships and exploitive relationships. And so we're trying uh, to learn if our software can be helpful to those who are serving those victims to help them visualize and organize and maybe even distinguish between the healthy and the unhealthy relationships to help build teams around those who are struggling. A lot of times, if you can imagine if you were contacted by a professional or a volunteer uh, working in a professional capacity and you learn that someone that you know and you care about or that you're related to is struggling and you might initially have a little bit of a fearful reaction. Am I going to be asked to solve this person's problems? Because those are big problems, homelessness, incarceration, trafficking, recovery. And so if you're asked to solve that person's problems, you're likely to be afraid of that. But if you're not asked to solve that person's problems, if you're asked to be on the team that might come around that person in a way that you would never be asked to do something you're not comfortable with, but that you would be offered the opportunity to try to help that person in a way that makes sense for you, in a way that's doable, most people who care anything about somebody would say yes to that. Wouldn't you agree? I would. And so those who are trying to help the folks who are in these difficult situations 
it's very hard to put together a team just on paper of people with that ask. It's too big of a group that you need to bring around. But if you have software that kind of helps line up, who are these people? What are they offering? What's their contact information? And how do I email them all at once? <laughs> it becomes much more doable. And so it's a more doable task for the person organizing, and it's a more doable ask for the person being asked and for the person being served. They can also be on the team. In fact, it's crucial if they're um, at a level uh, of functioning that they're able to be on the team because they can see visually the people who are standing up for them. Because a lot of times they're in a place where they feel they have no one. They feel their needs are so big. Nobody wants to help them. Nobody wants to deal with them. Nobody knows how to help them. And people turn away from them. If instead they see a whole list, the color that we suggest on our software used for supporters is blue. And so if you see a whole list of blue, here are the people who have stood up and said, I want to be on the team. I want to help Jennifer. It is very hard for your brain to deny that you have people and that those people are there for you. It doesn't mean that any one of them is saying, bring you, <clears throat> bring you and your four kids and sleep in my house. It doesn't mean that they're the same, but it means that you have a dozen, two dozen, three dozen people who said, I want what's, I want goodness for you. I want good things for you. And I'm there to help you in a way that I can. It's really hard for the brain to deny that and say, no one wants to help me. I have no one because it's not true. It's right there in front of you. And we've had, yeah, there's data, there's facts. We've had people tell us that they show youth, the list of people who are standing up for them right there visually. And the youth who had been saying, I have no one, no one cares about me, no one wants me, people have to be paid to feed me. And they say, no, these people want to help you. And that changes their outlook enormously because you can't say that in the face of that visual. Okay, well, this show is called Dreams with Deadlines. We talk about big, audacious goals. When you think about Connect Our Kids, the work that you're doing, the foster kids that you're helping, and the families, for that matter, and their people that you're trying to support, what would you say is the goal? Like, what is your dream with a deadline, as it were, if you were to think about that in the context of our Connect Our Kids and your mission? So we think that over the next 10 years, it is reasonable, it is our audacious goal, that every child and family who is affected by foster care or at risk of foster care would have the opportunity to be surrounded by their people, by their relationships, so that they are never having to be with strangers. Or if they are with strangers, those strangers are very quickly surrounded by people that already know and love that child. The strangers might be strangers briefly. There's a shift in the field from talking about foster parents to talking about resource parents, resource families. And there will always be a need, surely, for really high-quality resource parents who are in it for the right reasons, who want to be a resource to the struggling family. And that child may need a loving adoptive family at some point. It may be that, that that's the best thing for that child and that family. Um, but it should be thought of as a resource to them because even if you find that a child, we have 100,000 children every year in this country who are free for adoption. And every year, as we've talked about, 20,000 of them run out of time effectively. And, and so certainly loving adoptive families and parents are needed, loving, adop, uh, loving caring foster uh, resource families are needed, but the child should not be cut off from the other people who know and love and care for them. And so our 
our audacious goal is that within 10 years, we have shifted the field so that that is what's expected, that social workers come out of social work school knowing about the tools that are available and knowing how important it is that a child not be cut off from everything that they know and from the people that they come from and that they be connected with them. Whether it's, we never at Connect Our Kids suggest that we would know what's right for any particular case, but we know that human beings need to be in relationship and human beings almost always want to know where they came from. And so that's what, that's what we feel the field can do. We believe that social workers will be uh, much more fulfilled in this role if they can see that they are helping children and families rather than breaking them up and they can see and that they're supported in their jobs. Imagine having a job where you're not allowed to do the work that you're supposed to do, where instead of doing cool podcasts and reaching out with lots of cool information and sharing knowledge and ideas, you're just pretty much required to fill out forms all day and show up at a place and insist that you are trying. Like you wouldn't probably stay too long doing that because you're not able to do a thing that matters. And that's what we're asking social workers to do. We're taking people who are helpers, who are natural carers, and we're asking them to do work that breaks their heart. And you can't expect people to stay very long doing that. But if we can make it possible for them to do work that fills their hearts, that they can see how they matter every day, that they can see how they're saving families and children and empowering those families to save themselves. That's a job that a lot of people would really feel good about, would be excited about and would love. And at the same time, the families and children are better served. And we think that's possible. Because the people can see the purpose of their work. They're, they can be attached to that. I think that makes sense. We're going to continue with some quick fire questions, if that's cool. Second question here, what are the current challenges that you think are potentially roadblocks or obstacles to getting to that 10-year goal? It's always hard to change. Change is hard. Systems get set in place. This isn't unique to child welfare space. Systems get set in place, and then those systems reinforce themselves. The whole, the whole, everything around changing habits and everything around changing actions, whether it's becoming healthier, whether it's learning a new language, everything that exists in every other place in our lives is existing here. And so we have to work in all the usual ways to do that. But we think that it's especially doable because the stakes are so high. And because what keeps you going? Because I can imagine this work is hard. And as much as you're going to hear stories about Abby, there probably are setbacks in this. To your point, change is hard. There's a lot of bureaucracy. We're talking about the state and county level. There are 50 states and a lot more counties. What keeps you going at this? The Abbeys keep me going. And even though that might sound kind of simplistic, the fact is that even when we have to fight all the change, the normal change inertia and all those things, which are hard and less than exciting, uh, every day we hear these stories about kids and families whose lives are being changed. And for every bureaucratic obstacle that we have to fight, there's just one or two Abbeys those are real lives that are changed and they're worth it. 
Last question. You'd mentioned that this Time article, which I would love the link for so I can read it, if it's still available somewhere on the interwebs, maybe we'll have to use the Wayback Machine, but we'll get there. What other maybe books or articles really helped shape the way that you think? So actually, one of our team members wrote a book that I read early on. Her name is Georgette Todd, and her book is called Foster Girl. And she is brutally honest in this account of her own time in foster care. And it really helped me get my mind around a little piece of what it's like uh, to be in foster care, I think. Um, I'm sure it can't begin to compare to what it is really like to be in foster care, but she shares so deeply her thought processes and the whys of the things that she did and she experienced. There are a number of other books out there. One of our advisors, so what I did early on besides researching the data and the facts was I also tried to get as much information as I could around this experience because I didn't experience it myself. My co-founder, Jessica Stern, did experience foster care herself. And so she taught me an enormous amount, but I also read a lot about these. And, And so one of our advisors, Lisa Cohen, has also written her experience very brutally and honestly. And so there are a number of other books out there like that, which I found incredibly helpful because it gives you all of the detailed experiences of why lives go awry like this, why children end up moving homes and being mistreated and not speaking out about it, or speaking out and not being listened to, the bureaucracy of how precious lives are being treated like numbers. And you can see how it happens. It's not okay in any way that it happens, but you can see how bureaucracy and pressures on professionals and and human beings making sometimes less than great decisions ends up with children being stuck in the middle. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Jennifer Jacobs. It's been an enlightening conversation. I love your dream with the deadline, and I look forward to seeing that audacious dream achieved at some point with Connect Our Kids and what's happening with what you believe the future of foster care should be. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we invite you to join the Dreams with Deadlines community. Dreams with Deadlines is a global network of ambitious business leaders and innovators who are passionate about using OKRs and agile practices to build high-performing cultures, achieve bold goals, and influence our world for the better. Learn more and join us at dwd.community.